In 2022, 274 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance and protection. Preventing, mitigating and responding to humanitarian crises is a challenge. Can fiction and storytelling play a role? Can it raise awareness and motivate action to address the causes and consequences of humanitarian crises? My name is Ruth Mukwana and I host the Saha podcast, Stories and Humanitarian Action. Welcome to the Saha Podcast, Stories and Humanitarian Action. I have a great guest for you today. Before I introduce her, I'd like to ask you to subscribe to my YouTube channel. And if you enjoy today's conversation, please like, comment, and share it. My guest today is Hawa Sabrie, who works with UNICEF in Somalia. She's a specialist in education, refugee and migration studies, and community culture and policy. Hi, Hawa. I'm so glad to speak to you today and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. And um, so tell me a little bit about yourself. Who are you? How would you describe yourself? Sure. I would describe myself as a teacher, a researcher, a humanitarian, and a lifelong student. Uh, I'm both Canadian and Somali. I entered the world of uh, humanitarian work through um, the education sector. Um, I was a primary school teacher first in Toronto. And then throughout my graduate studies, I was really interested in uh, researching access to higher education for refugees living in Dadaab, Kenya, which then uh, inspired me to move uh, to Mogadishu, Somalia with my family, which is where I am today and uh, doing work that I love being uh, within the education sector and supporting a country that I love as well. Yeah, and as I was preparing for, you know, my interview with you, I definitely want to talk to you about education uh, in a bit more detail. But before I do that, um, tell me, what does a typical day look like for you? Well, when I'm in the office, a typical day for me would be meeting with my education uh, colleagues, looking at the various different programs that we have uh, at the moment. So we're working on education and emergencies, looking at supporting uh, children who have been impacted by the drought, getting them into uh, learning environments. Um, looking at how we can also address climate change uh, and the impacts that it's having uh, within the education sector. When I'm in the field, it looks like uh, a typical day would look like me meeting with the education partners that are supporting the delivery of education, meeting with the different teachers, the head teachers, the students, um, sometimes even camp leaders. Uh, working within the IDP settings. Um, so every day is, is different, but it's always exciting and inspiring. Yeah, no, and I, you know, of course, as I said a bit earlier, education is so important, at least, excuse me, in my own work as well. Everywhere I've gone, speaking to people who are um, displaced uh, or who are affected by, you know, different conflict or natural disasters, most of them, parents, when you ask them, what is the one thing that you want for your children? It's always they want, you know, they want education. They want their kids to be back in school. It's one of the sustainable development goals, goal four. But tell me, um, what are some of the challenges actually for access for children to education, especially in crisis settings? Yeah, so when we look at uh, crisis settings, whether it's conflict or climate change, sometimes the education uh, work is kind of sidelined. 
it's not viewed as important as, you know, health or nutrition or finding shelter protection, but I think it's almost just as important as those, as those other sectors. And I think when we look at, uh, you know, Somalia, this is kind of a prolonged situation, right? We have not only conflict, but we have, um, you know, climate change, like drought, flooding. And some of the key challenges is just really being able to change the narrative of how education is viewed. You know, education um, can sometimes look like as, as an expense, you know, putting children into school can sometimes cost uh, families, you know, finances or um, children also support their families. Some of them could be working. So right now, one of the key challenges is being able to change that narrative, that education is really investing in the future generation of Somalia. You are strengthening the human uh, capital. You're strengthening, um, you know, the populations that are going to be leading the future of this country. So uh, changing the narrative, but also um, the capacity building of, of, you know, supporting the Ministry of Education at the federal level, but also at the states, um, supporting the delivery of high quality education. So that's strengthening the way that the curriculum is being delivered, um, strengthening the skills and the competencies of the teachers. Um, those are some of mostly the key challenges, but I think our biggest one is getting children back into school. Because right now, Somalia has one of the highest number of out-of-school children. We're looking at 4.8 million children, school-age children that are not in school. So right now, that is really the biggest uh, challenge for us. Right. And um, in fact, I also know, I was looking a little bit at the statistics, um, for education globally, at least I think by the end of 2021, 1.6 billion children, you know, were still out of school because of the pandemic. Um, but I'm also wondering if you could talk to me a little bit, because it's also very different access for the boy child and for the girl child. And what is at the sort of core of these inequalities when it comes for access for the girl child? When it comes to um, access for girls, particularly, it's again looking at, well, what value is it uh, when you educate a girl, uh, when you educate young women? Sometimes the narrative here is that, you know, the role of the girl or the, of the woman is really supporting the family, uh, supporting the household. Um, and we have more, you know, males within the workforce in terms of the government, when we look at the government um, within even, you know, the private sector. So it's really being able to break down that stigma, the narrative that educating a girl is not as important as educating uh, the boy ch child. So I think, and I think there is progress because especially with UNICEF and the education partners that we're working with, we have partners on the ground that are talking to community members, particularly within the IDP uh, settlements, because that's where you will find the highest number of not only girls, but boys that have never gone to school. So the importance of education is just not there. It's not understood well. But I think that once we continue um, to break those stigmas, uh, in particular, looking at, you know, when you you know, there's that saying that when you educate a girl, you educate a community. And that's really what we want to continue to stress um, and bringing not only the numbers of girls up, but of course, of, of boys and of all children within Somalia. Right. And, um, and again, you know, I know we always say, you know, uh, in many contexts, uh, at least the ones I'm working on, you know, I'm working on Haiti at the moment, Myanmar as well, some of the countries. And there we just see how conflict 
Um, in fact, in Haiti, it's really gang violence and how that has disrupted access for, for, for children. I mean, we've seen recently in Haiti kids being abducted from, from schools, but we've also seen an increase um, in um, targeting of schools. And schools were really supposed to be safe spaces where, you know, parents send children and, 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 and they are safe. But even here where I am in New York, in the U.S., you know, we see gun, you know, gun violence in schools. But, you know, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about more that, you know, because I know from a humanitarian perspective, you know, when we talk about education in emergencies, a big element of that is actually protection for the children. They're at school, they're continuing to learn, they're accessing food. But they are also safe. They are safe from child recruitment, from, you know, abduction, child labor, and all of these other secondary impacts. Yeah. I, you know, within Somalia, and I, and I can speak on behalf of uh, the work that UNICEF does, one of the key things that we want to do when we are delivering education is making sure that we do, uh, deliver an integrated response. So we need to work closely with our child protection partners uh, on the ground um, to be able to deliver education that also, like you said, provides protection. The learning environments that we are working with partners to, whether it's to construct temporary learning spaces or uh, rehabilitate schools, they need to have a strong protection element. And one of the key ways that we do this is working with community education committees. So these committees are made up of parents, community members, camp leaders, to see how we are best able to deliver this education, while also being able to provide a learning environment that, um, you know, strengthens the child's, you know, mental, social, and physical growth, you know, um, and of course, if there are cases, uh, you know, of, of you know protection-related um, instances, there also needs to be a space that's safe enough for them to be able to um, share that complaint. And then again, a feedback mechanism that allows us to actually address um, protection uh, complaints and any issues that arise. So really. What's important for us is being able to just provide that integrated response. And again, at the end of the day, you know, be able to reach every child, but ensure that their, their safety um, allows them to be able to really, uh, you know, participate in gaining, um, you know, knowledge that's going to help them outside of the classroom. Yeah. And at this point, I'm going to really segue into um, the other piece of the, the, the podcast. So, of course, I like to talk to humanitarian practitioners like yourself, experts like yourself, and get a little bit of uh, perspective from you, from you on, you know, some of those large challenges that we are grappling with in the humanitarian sector. And then really try to see, you know, can fiction help address some of these, uh, not address, but perhaps raise awareness on these issues, and then also motivate action to address the causes and consequences of humanitarian crisis. And so the first question I'd like to ask is really, do you see a role for fiction to raise awareness or to, mot to motivate action uh, to address the causes and consequences of humanitarian crisis? Yes, uh, well, the answer is absolutely, especially I think for those who are working within the sector. Um, fiction can offer not only like a great escape from, you know, our nine to five, but it can introduce us to new ideas. Um, and the one main thing that I think that fiction would really allow us to do is to practice empathy. And I think that's what we need to be able to kind of jump into a new world 
um, feel the feelings that these characters are feeling, the challenges that they're dealing with. Sometimes it could be, you know, science fiction, so something that's really out of our realm in terms of being able to see within the world that we're living in, but being able to be introduced to new ideas. And it also a lot, fiction breaks barriers, I believe, because a lot of the times we are obviously picking up novels that are in our native language or languages that we're able to, um, you know, that are accessible to us. And sometimes the contexts that we're working in um, can, can be quite foreign. And sometimes you could be in a meeting, you might not understand the language, you might need um, translation. And when you're in, um, you know, a story that you can fully understand, fully grasp, you're be being introduced to different characters, different worlds, um, and even like different, you know, time periods of life. Um, it allows us, I think it refreshes our minds, introduces us to new ideas, new knowledge that we can actually bring into our day-to-day -day work. Um, especially when we're working in, you know, challenging uh, areas, especially like Somalia. Right. And um, this, this then really break down this, I mean, your perspectives um, and relate this to the book that we would like to discuss, um, A Crooked Rape by Nuruddin Farah. Um, but first, what is this book about? What is the story? Yeah, so um, this book is about a young girl uh, named Ebla who uh, lives in the countryside of Somalia and um, is told that she's going to be married off. Her grandfather has essentially kind of sold her off to an older man and she decides that this is not what she wants for her life and she runs away to a city called Belladwain um, where she ends up staying with her cousin and it was almost like uh, uh, you know, another um, uh, cycle, I guess, like she, her cousin is again, uh, willing to marry her off. And essentially it's this journey of her um, eventually, you know, marrying, but really through her own choice. Um, and I think it's a story, it's interesting because Nuruddin Farah is, is, is a male and the story is told from a feminine perspective. Uh, you hear her thoughts when she's in these uh, instances of, of, you know, communication about um, being married off, um, you know, her thoughts about her family, her thoughts about her culture, religion. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, a, a, I think summing it up in one sentence, it's a young woman's journey uh, to what she hopes is freedom and choice. Right. And um, what are some of the themes in this book? I know you've already touched uh, upon some of them. Or maybe actually before we do that, um, can you read an excerpt from the book? Because I'm sure one of the excerpts will probably speak to one of the themes in the book. Yes. Okay. So this is uh, um, from, I believe, chapter 22. Ebla um, repeated to herself that she loved life. However, she did not really understand what life was. She had a wrong interpretation of life. If her interpretation was right, then everybody's would be right. To her, life meant freedom, freedom of every sort. One should do whatever one wants. That is life. That is what I love. Freedom, that was what she worshipped. Right, and that's so powerful. Um, and that's clearly one of the themes um, in the book. And maybe we'll talk about some of some of the other themes as well. So does Elba find this freedom that she's so yearning for? I think um, towards the end, I like to believe that she did. Um, I think as someone reading the book, I challenged uh, her choices when it came to freedom. 
some of the choices that she made, I didn't actually view as freedom. And so at the end of the day, it also made me question, well, what are, what does choice mean? What does freedom mean? And it means something different uh, to everyone. Like she, like she mentioned, freedom can't be the same uh, for everyone. So yeah, I think it's, it's a, it's a difficult story. The themes are quite heavy. Um, and it was also interesting to read the book um, from, you know, Somalia, uh, mentioning the city Beladoin. That was the very first city that I actually traveled to um, when I first moved here and started working. So, yeah, I think in a way she does find freedom. Right. And um, what are some of the other themes in the book? I think one of the, the big themes was uh, gender-based violence, um, forced marriage. Uh, what does it mean to be a woman in terms of uh, the value of your life? Um, and of course, this book was written in 1970. So, uh, and I think um, even when the book is the story that is unfolding, it's even before independence. So we have even themes related to a country's independence, colonization, um, yeah, lots, lots of interesting different theories. Yeah. And themes. Right. Yeah. And also, you know, of course we have themes and we were talking earlier when we we're talking about education and access to education for the girl child. So we were talking about, um, the treatment of women, the inequalities between the treatment of, uh, women and children, of course, um, child marriage, um, and I think I was reading, when I was reading uh, some of the interviews or what Nuruddin himself said about the book, he said for him, it was also really about male oppression and women's struggle against um, domination. And I wonder if you could uh, speak to that. I mean, I think when it comes to domination, I found that to be uh, really heavy when, when she eventually did get married. Um, and her relation to her husband. Um, well, she has, you know, a, a spoiler alert, she gets married twice. Um, but her relation to her husband was almost viewed as she was an object, that she had to obey um, everything that, that they said, they told her to do. The only thing that really felt like um, belonged to her were her thoughts. And I loved being able to read her thoughts. Um, and at times I wish that she actually vocalized the thoughts that she had. Um, but it's interesting that he, he, you know, discussed, uh, male oppression because I almost, I didn't see that. Um, I really viewed her as the one who was being oppressed. Um, but of course there's also society, um, that made, I believe, uh, you know, her husband, Awil, and her, her second husband behaved the way that they behaved. They made it safe um, and for them to be able to believe that they could treat her like that. Um, yeah. No, and let me also just correct myself. Um, male oppression of, of women, not uh, uh, the oppression of men okay. in the book. That makes yeah. sense. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and of course, you know, again, when when we were talking about uh, education, I think the other, and one of the things Elba is really questioning is the role of women in society. And, you know, one of the questions she asks, you know, is there a role, um, marriage, 
And why do, you know, why do people marry? And that's, I think, really a big question that she's asking uh, as, you know, as a young woman. And again, you know, I wonder if you can speak to that a little bit. Yeah, and at times, um, even though I found her to be a very strong-willed woman in character, there were times where I disagreed with her um, because, and of course, maybe it was, you know, the situations that she were in were so um, complex and difficult that, you know, I tried my best to empathize with the thoughts that she was having because the narrative um, and of course, these are the thoughts in her head that women are only, uh, you know, in terms of society are just meant to bear children. And maybe there isn't any hope. Maybe there, you know, things can't change. And there was also a discussion where um, someone asked, why didn't she let her brother uh, stay in the city of Mogadishu? He could have gone to school. And she said, well, what's the point of that? You know, um, that she didn't believe in the importance of, of education, that he would be better off learning how to do the work. Um, in the countryside. And of course, that's a narrative that I see here, when, especially when I'm in the field, especially when I'm talking to community members, that there is still a push when it comes to um, the importance of education. And, and again, also the discussion of what is the role of women in society. But I definitely think that we have come so far from the thoughts that she has and to where we are today. I don't know. I wonder though, because I, I, and you know, of course, I, I'm very interested. I mean, I'm a woman, so I'm very interested in the treatment of women and the inequalities. And I just feel we are so far away uh, from getting there, no matter where women are. Better in in some situations in some countries, but I still feel like we are so far away. Because even the developed countries, for example, I was very shocked to just learn that women are paid less uh, yeah. for the same work that they do with men, <laughs> in, you know. Um, but yeah. that's, I guess, a bigger discussion as well. But there are moments in the book that make the reader very angry. And I wonder if there were moments for you that made you very angry and gave, you know, gave you that emotion. And if you could just share what, what, what some of those moments were and why. I think um, one of the most difficult parts of the book to read was the discussion around FGM. And, um, you know, one might read this book and think, wow, that practice is barbaric. It must not happen anymore. This book was, was you know, it's set before Somalia even got independence, when actually FGM is still practiced today. Um, and I think, it, you know, the author did a good job of not making the writing too graphic, but it was graphic enough for me to kind of put it down and, you know, take a, a breath and um, really question because uh, Ebla's response to it, I felt like she wasn't even questioning the practice so much, but really kind of describing what happened to her as kind of like, you know, a normal part of life that all girls go through. And it, it's not to say that she, you know, obviously she found it very painful, um, but I think the parts of the book were, that were really frustrating for me were related to the, uh, I like to view it as the assault of the female body. Um, her first night with her husband, Awil, and this lack of autonomy to the females in this book, in particular to, to Elba. And um, that was just very hard for me to read. And I think you know, going back to me being very positive, I also have to acknowledge 
that I do come from a place of, of privilege, privilege. Um, you know, like I mentioned, I'm Canadian and Somali, and I've had the opportunity to be educated. Um, I'm very grateful that I, I never experienced FGM, but um, I think reading the lack of autonomy in terms of having control of your own body was very difficult for me to read. Yeah, and um, I'll actually share with you because I spoke to our gender advisor and we talked a lot about women's rights and equality in, 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 in many of the conflict settings or in humanitarian crisis. But when you mention FGM, one of the things that it just reminds me, a month ago, I think a friend of mine actually shared a video of this young girl um, who was actually being hit by a group of men, turns out those were her friends and boys. She was in Kenya and um, basically she, 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 she was supposed to go undergo FGM and she had escaped because she wanted to go to school. Um, and then she came back home to pick up her clothes and then they kind of captured her and this happened to her. And I was like, wow. it's, it, you know, it is 2023 and it was just so heartbreaking for me that, um, you know, this is still a practice mm-hmm. yeah. that is happening and two young girls and it was just, you know, very heartbreaking for me and actually just really made me so angry. Yeah. And I think like that's the power of fiction, being able to sometimes almost, you know, humanize the situation that we see as so far from us. Like the reaction that I got to reading the passage uh, really impacted me. And I think it could do that to someone that might not really even be aware of what FGM is. Right. And I'm going to leave it at this on the book and slowly start winding down uh, our conversation. Um, and one of the things I also really like to ask is in, in the work that we do, particularly in, in, in humanitarian crisis, it can be very uh, impactful at a personal level, either positively or sometimes haunting, depending on the experiences that humanitarian workers go through. And again, I'm just wondering if, you know, you can tell me about a person or situation you have encountered in your work, who has had a profound effect on you? Um, I think, honestly, one of the most um, impactful moments, I think, uh, you know, moving to Somalia, um, I never mentioned that my first, uh, you know, real job at the UN was with OCHA as a humanitarian affairs officer. And I think, you know, I got I, with OCHA, I traveled to so many different parts of the country. But the first time that I saw um, a child who uh, was malnourished was very difficult. It's it's so different than seeing a photo in an article or um you know, watching the news and seeing these video clips. But when you see it in real life, um, it really haunted me. It really uh, almost put me in a dark place for a few days. Um, And then, you know, as you know, with Ocha, you're constantly going to the field. So I think one of the most challenging parts was not allowing myself to be desensitized and to allow the things that I was seeing to become normal. Um, And I think that's, 
why it's so important to be able to connect with other humanitarians. So people that make an impact um, or have made an impact in my life are particularly um, other humanitarians, but strong women. So, um, you know, one of the first people that I met uh, in Ocha was Cindy. Uh, you, you know Cindy very well, and she was such a strong force in the way that she engaged with uh, government officials, with partners, with um, us, you know, other Ocha colleagues. And I just was so moved and so inspired by um, just like, yeah, the way that she was able to communicate the needs, but also I felt like she was never desensitized, that she was always moved um, towards the right way. So we'd come back from mission and she would want action right away. And, and when I have, uh, have the opportunity to work with leaders like that, I'm inspired. I'm inspired to, to continue this work and to also um, envision a future where I could be in a role of leadership like that. So yeah, that's, <laughs> those are the people that really inspire me. No, and thank you. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. Um, and also for speaking about, uh, you know, I call it numbing. You know, sometimes I think people are exposed to so much suffering that they become numb to it. And mm -hmm. so, you know, finding that strength to actually continue to care, to not feel um, it's too much, it's, there's nothing that can be done. I think that's something that is truly a challenge for, for so many humanitarian workers. Of course, I know Cindy. Cindy is amazing. And yes. ah, you are very inspiring yourself. I've had such amazing things about you and can't wait to see your own journey uh, in, in this sector. And Thank my you. last question for you really is um, if there's one action that someone can take to improve access for education for the children, what would that action be? I think in Somalia, it's changing the narrative of education, in particular, um, looking at primary uh, education, um, being able to have discussions with family members uh, to discuss, you know, what is the value of education. Um, I want to have conversations within family members here in Mogadishu, um, in various other states that I have family members in, just to be able to discuss, um, you know, looking at education as an intergenerational investment. We are investing in the future of, of our children, of this country. And I think being able to break the stigma that um, education has, um, and, you know, people will complain about the low quality of education, how maybe it's just, it's not worth it in a country that's not stable. Um, but I really do believe that if we continue to have conversations on the importance of education and looking at education as really kind of the core that will help us solve issues when it comes to health, nutrition, um, climate change, it is at the center of, of really all of the challenges. Um, and it's able to really, you know, I think with more support within the sector, it can, I think, make worlds of changes within this country. Right. And thank you. Thank you for that. And that is my last question for you. Uh, let me know if you have any questions for me. No, this is great. Absolutely. Um, love this experience. I did actually watch the interview that you did with April, and I think that anyone watching should uh, join uh, the book club that we have, Read for Action. 
um, and just, yeah, get more involved with reading fiction. And I think it could just inspire you, especially if you're within the humanitarian sector. Thank you. And thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. And, um, you know, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation with Hawa. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please like, comment, subscribe to my YouTube channel. And I would like to thank my co-producer, Melike Mensa and the Nomadic Band for the music. Thank you. Bye.